Hello and welcome to Covered Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Gina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Circle. The Circle was written by Dave Eggers and was published in 2013. And the film adaptation, which came out in 2017, was directed by James Ponsult. This is a patron-requested episode. Our lovely patron, Caroline, requested this episode. And uh, fun fact, uh, I actually went to grad school with Caroline, but I didn't realize that she was a patron because her name on Discord was like some kind of different (laughs) handle. And so she requested the episode, and I was like, hey, what's your name, by the way? I just know you by your handle on Discord. And she was like, oh, it's Caroline from grad school. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Hi. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) So we're happy to be doing a patron-requested episode. This has also been on our long list for a while. It has. I knew that the book was pretty well-liked when it came out which has been about 10 years ago now, and the movie was a movie. (laughs) People could agree on that. Uh, Obviously, a lot of people know that it wasn't well-received, low Rotten Tomatoes score, so like that difference of um, reception definitely had us interested. For sure, and the star-studded cast, right? Having Emma Watson as the main character, Tom Hanks, right? We have some other big names in there. We know it's interesting, too. We've talked about James Ponsult as a director before, too. Oh, really? He did uh, The Spectacular Now. Oh. He directed that. He was also at least an executive producer on Daisy Jones and the Six. Interesting. I don't know if he directed any episodes or not, but he was involved with that project too. Huh. So shall we get into uh, the, the gist of this story, right? Yeah. Let's start with the main character, May, played by Emma Watson, who is a recent college graduate. She's been working at this power company in her hometown And just super unsatisfied with her job, had kind of all these aspirations after college, but sort of has settled for this job and hasn't really been able to find anything else. Yeah, she's not happy. She's working for or with a lot of people who are like way older than her. Right. So she kind of feels like, is this my future? Right. A lot of existential crisis type stuff. She has a good friend, though, that she went to college with named Annie. And Annie is a an upper member of the circle, which is this story's Google slash Facebook slash like every other uh, Silicon Valley type company. Yeah, as if like Facebook and Google and Amazon like all merged into one horrible company. Yes, (laughs) one monstrosity. (laughs) That's the circle. Uh, Annie is just a a well-respected person there, though. I don't know if we fully get that in the film no like i think you know that she has some power if she's able to kind of like get may an interview for a job but i don't think it's quite clear or i mean maybe she's just not supposed to be as significant in the film as she is in the book yeah it's not not as obvious for sure but yeah she gets uh may an interview and aces the interview does a really good job and like eventually gets position offered to her in the circle And then we should also mention that May's parents, she's an only child, um, her dad has MS. Yes, and that's just like a big factor of her parents' life and her life currently. Uh, Her mom is taking care of him, and it's one of the situations where May wants to help more, but she doesn't live nearby anymore, and like it's just kind of a... It's a source of guilt, I think, and she just wishes that she could do more for them. Yeah, and they're dealing with, of course, horrible insurance and having, you know, the care that her dad needs be denied them or to have to jump through all these hurdles, which is, you know, super relatable and unfortunately still 
a huge problem with like the healthcare system in America. Yeah. So uh, May begins her job. Should we talk about the campus just a little bit here? Yeah. Um, I mean, like, so it's described in the book in great detail about all these buildings. All the buildings are named after different eras of history, <laughs> like the Old West and the Renaissance, the Renaissance and kind of very pretentious sounding. And they have just every amenity you could ever want, right? There's gyms, there's tennis courts, there's saunas, there's uh, a daycare hospital, daycare. For their kids, doggy daycares Dog for daycare. their dogs. Yeah, there, there's this whole like place where cafeteria, I guess, called the glass eatery that's supposed to be all glass and you can just see people like up their skirts. I don't know. <laughs> I'm that like, is why, really true, why, right? why the obsession with glass, Ian? Because of the transparency, Adina. Yes. The literal and figurative transparency of the story. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's like, you know, described as being just like this utopia, right? I don't know if we fully get the scope of that in the film. No. It just looks like a fancy, like, California town. Yeah. Like a tech area. I don't know. Like there's kind of a general campus we see them walking on a lot, but we don't see like as many of the amenities. We don't kind of get that full picture of just like how this is supposed to be everything you could ever possibly want at any moment. Right. Yeah. And in the book, I think the movie kind of very briefly mentions this, but in the book they have dorms on campus. Oh, yes. For their employees to live in. So really kind of making it very clear that you don't need to leave here, right? And in fact, kind of encouraging them not to leave. Like, you know, like you said, they have a hospital there. They have stores they can buy stuff from, gyms, um, restaurants. You know, they're bringing in all this entertainment, right, for them. It's very much like, and then they're like, oh, you might as well sleep here, right? Why don't you just have an apartment so you're like closer to work? It's very the opposite of work-life balance, <laughs> It's work is your life. Work is your life, absolutely. And obviously this is heavily based on like the reality of certain companies like Google. Yeah, I think like, I mean, it's been 10 years since this book was published. Yes. And this still obviously happens. I mean, a lot has changed in those 10 years. But this idea of like, if you give your employees all these perks, then they'll like stay at work longer and yeah. work longer hours and like not leave and feel more like tied to the office and like that they don't want to go home because they'll be disconnected for like all the things that's happening. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that I think in the 10 years since this book came out and especially uh, since the pandemic People are much more aware of, like, the issues surrounding this kind of this idea, right? This approach by companies and how a lot of people who work for these big companies don't even get paid enough to actually afford rent in a lot of the areas that they live in. Yeah, especially in, like, Silicon Valley, right? Yes, absolutely. Like, rent is just astronomical. And then, like, they're in these environments where they're not expected to go home and they feel like they can't go home. And now people are just, like, aware, like... Hey, this is a trap, right? Like, sure, it's nice to have a gym I can go to or like doggy daycare, right? Mm-hmm. But the the expectation and the trade-off obviously is that they're going to work me to death. Yeah. And I think so many people just know that now. So like it's kind of funny to read this story and and or sorry, May is being shown all of this by Annie and May's just like, "Oh my god, this is the greatest place I've ever seen. I'm never going home. Like this is <laughs> wonderful. What could go wrong?" And you're just like, "Oh god." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like talking about the company culture, right? Like they really 
in in May's like orientation and stuff, you know, she's working in like customer service essentially. And she has her job, but then she's expected to do all these other things, right? At one point she gets like kind of reprimanded for not being on their social media site and participating in the social media. Because it's interesting in this book, The Circle is kind of part of this whole, like, it's a social media company. It's also, like, where you can buy and sell stuff. Like, people are tweeting. People are, like, emailing. Like, it's this whole kind of integrated experience. And it's, like, everything has to go through this online forum or it doesn't happen or exist. And, you know, she has these two employees come up to her saying like, oh, we actually not only track how much the customers that you're dealing with, like rate you based on that experience. We're also tracking how much you interact with the social media sites and how much you participate online. Yes, they get rankings and numbers based on that. So much of her job and everything she does there relates to statistics and numbers uh she is in customer experience and so she like just helps people and then she gets a rating back on that and then she has to follow up and get an adjusted rating if she needs to and so there's like those numbers and then like you were saying with like your interaction online and then also your interaction with events on campus you have like a ranking of you out of everyone else who works there. Yeah. And she's kind of reprimanded early on because like, oh, she went home to visit her parents one weekend and missed a bunch of events. There's a really absurd scene in the book where she's called into her boss's office because she missed a Portugal brunch. A Portugal brunch. Portugal brunch. And the guy who ran it is like almost in tears. He's they like, bring HR in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and May's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, I had no idea. Like, please forgive me. Like it at points, it really starts like leaning into the absurd, like almost kind of satirical, but like not usually quite crossing that threshold, but like really close to it. I think this is a little hard in the beginning. Yes. Especially this scene in particular, because she just started working at this company and she didn't RSVP to his invitation is the problem. And so he was like upset that she didn't RSVP. But like. I mean, in reality, if someone doesn't RSVP, just assume that they're not coming. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, and she didn't see it. And she's like, oh, I didn't know that new people were invited. Like, she doesn't tell the truth, which was, I didn't even see the invitation. I've just started. I was, like, super overwhelmed. And I hadn't even gotten some of my social media profiles set up yet. Like, she doesn't really even go there at the beginning. And so I think, like, from the beginning, May is kind of, like, buying into this maybe just a little bit too much, right? Yeah. Like, you would expect her to at least be kind of upfront and honest about, like, hey, I didn't even know this was happening. Yeah, she really doesn't um, stand up for herself at all. And, and I shouldn't even say stand up for herself, but, like, her inner monologue is never, like, Jesus Christ, like, what are these people on about? Like, yeah. do I have to be here? Like, what the hell? And, uh, and, and so, yeah, it, it can be really frustrating reading her perspective at points because... She just is so quickly in it, right? And believing everything. And while the story is this gradual escalation of events, part of me feels like if you threw her in at the end of the story, she would have just been as willing to be like, go along with everything. Like there's very little... Conflict. Yeah, yeah. She very rarely second guesses like anything going on around her yeah and if she does it just for a second and then she kind of gets back in it yeah yeah it's it's 
I mean, her her character is more of like you as the reader, right? Experiencing. She's kind of a vehicle for you kind of being introduced to the circle. But at the same time, I feel like she doesn't necessarily act in a way that you would. And so that kind of makes it hard, I think, to identify with her sometimes. Absolutely. Because like reading this book, like especially at the beginning, I felt such an immense feeling of stress. Yeah. Like I was listening to this on audiobook and at one point I was at the gym and maybe it's the fact I was like physically working out while listening to it, but just like her daily tasks of numbers and responses and percentage points. And then she did this and then got rated this and like, and it goes on and on and on. And I'm like, <laughs> like I'm like hyperventilating <laughs> at, like the I, gym. at the gym. Yeah. Not doing anything though. Just standing there hyperventilating. And I had to just like stop it at points. Cause it was just stressing me the fuck out. No, it's incredibly stressful. In fact, I'd like to read a portion of that Ooh, actually. Please. Cause there's this really good, I mean, I think it's really, this is a really interesting section of the book. So this is may is deciding to pull an all nighter to get some extra work done and also get her rank up among the employees, right? So, <clears throat> she pushed forward, signing up for a few hundred more Zing feeds, starting with a comment on each. She was soon at 2012, and now she was really getting resistance. She posted 33 comments on a product test site and rose to 2000, 2009. She looked at her left wrist to see how her body was responding and thrilled at the sight of her pulse rate increasing. She was in command of all this and needed more. The total number of stats she was tracking was only 41. That w- there was her aggregate customer service score, which was at 97. There was her last score, which was 99. There was the average of her pod, which was at 96. There was the number of queries handled that day thus far, 221. And the number of queries handled by that time yesterday, two, uh, 219. <laughs> and the number handled by her on average, 220. And by the pod's other members, 198. On her second screen, there was the number of messages sent by other staffers that day, 1,192, and the number of those messages that she'd read, 239, and the number to which she responded, 88. There was the number of recent invitations to Circle Company events, 41, and the number she responded to, 28. There was the number of overall visitors to the Circle sites that day, 3.2 billion, and the number of page views, 88.7 billion. There was a number of friends in May's outer circle, 762, and outstanding requests by those wanting to be her friend, 27. So it goes on and on (laughs) and on and on. And I just want to read this last kind of ending part here. It occurred to her in a moment of sudden clarity that what had always caused her anxiety or stress or worry was not any one force, nothing independent and external. It wasn't danger to herself or the constant calamity of other people and their problems. It was internal. It was subjective. It was not knowing. It wasn't that she had an argument with a friend or was called on the carpet by Josiah or Denise. It was not knowing what it meant, not knowing their plans, not knowing the consequences, the future. If she knew these, there would be calm. I disagree, May. I think the source (laughs) of your stress and anxiety is all those numbers. (laughs) Honestly, even just you reading them, I'm just sitting here like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Your heart rate's increasing. It is, it is. I'm having a panic attack right now. Yeah, and I mean, like, so much of the book is that, at the beginning especially. And, like, I think it is partially intentional, right? It is supposed to be overwhelming. It is supposed to be stress-inducing. Yeah. But it's also challenging because, like, May isn't reciprocating those feelings at all. 
And I think as the story goes, she is clearly having anxiety issues, right? Yeah, we see that. That we see that we don't know where to attribute. But I'm like, I'd be having anxiety right out of the gate. And I would know (laughs) what's causing it, too. It wouldn't be any question of like, huh, I wonder why my heart is racing right now, you know? Yeah. So it can be difficult in the beginning. But like I said, I also think that was probably intentional to a degree. Mm -hmm. It's just... Not my favorite vibe. It's not my favorite experience when I'm reading a it's book. It's not my, which is odd because I like, at least as far as movies go, I like movies that are stressful, you know, like Uncut Gems or Whiplash, right? Like, I enjoy those movies. Uh, but for some reason in written form, it's like worse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah, let's talk about Francis, Ian. What can we say about Francis? He's an exclusive character to the book. The movie just totally cuts him out. Yes. Uh, May meets him early on at a party uh, at the circle, and he is immediately weird. He's just weird right away. He's just uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, But, like, they have this whole discussion, and, like, their whole interaction is so odd. And May is drunk, and I think Francis is probably drunk, too. And so at first I'm like... Is their conversation so weird just because they're both drunk right now? It's not. No. He has this, like, vibe that's, oh, I'm, like, a loser, and I'm, like, oh, so lucky to be talking to you, but at the same time saying, like, really weird and inappropriate things to her, and then being like, oh, sorry, I'm just awkward. I just don't know how to talk to girls. I think that you're just a creep. (laughs) I think you're really creepy. Like, it's almost a form of manipulation. It is. It really is. Uh, and if the creepiness weren't bad enough, Francis's project that he's working on at the circle is microchips to track where children go, (laughs) but it's to protect children, Adina. Of course. Of course. Nothing, nothing nefarious or creepy about it. Yeah, we find out from Annie that his tragic backstory is that he was in, like, foster care, and his two younger sisters were abducted, raped, and murdered as children. And so now his life mission is to put microchips in the bones of children. Into the bones. Into the bones of children so he can know personally (laughs) where they are at all times. And I'm like, this is a pedophile. This is insane. This is a pedophile. Absolutely. And like, also, you don't need a tragic backstory to want to do something like good. No. You know, either. Even though this is bad. Even though this is bad. Very bad. Like. Even if his intention with it is actually good, like, you don't need a tragic backstory to do that. Yeah, I think it's really funny that the movie only references this in that one party scene where May is talking to this other woman who is supposedly leading this microchip program. And May laughs in her face when she says they're going to put the microchips in their bones. And then she realizes they're serious. (laughs) and She's like, oh, I'm sorry. But I did love that. And also, I think in the film, there's this idea that May isn't quite as into the company culture as everyone else's. Yeah. Or not at this point yet, right? Like, mm-hmm. she hears something absurd like that, and she's like, what the fuck are you doing? She makes a comment later, like, oh, I thought that was a bit much, you know, about yeah. a presentation and things like that. Yeah, she seems a little less drinking the Kool-Aid, uh, as Book May is, for sure. Because Book May has no problem with this being... Francis's whole personality, right? Microchipping children in the bone. Yes. Something about it being in their bones. (laughs) I just can't get over it. Putting microchips in children's bones. Yeah. The the project. (laughs) (laughs) A case study. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, If that weren't bad enough, she begins a kind of relationship with Francis. 
and he does everything he possibly can to fuck it up. Yeah. And yet May keeps returning to him. Uh, at first, they're like kind of going out. And then he gets up on stage during a presentation and uses her as an example and like pulls up her social media profile. For like a, yeah, presentation. Like a dating kind of thing. And that was weird because like he's very suddenly, he's different on stage and he seems more put together. And I don't know if that's supposed to allude to the idea that who he is with May is like a facade. But that's kind of never brought up again. No. She's mad at him. He's like, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't mean to. <laughs> I'm sorry. And then she ends up going back to him. They have a brief, brief sexual encounter. Very brief. Very brief. <laughs> uh, and she finds out he was filming it. Yeah. And then she's like, could you delete that? And he's like, oh, well, I mean, it's backed up onto the circle. So even if I did, like, it wouldn't matter. But I'm not going to either. Yeah. And she's like, what the fuck? And then she goes back to him again later. Yeah. Only for him to constantly never pleasure her. Ian. Never. Never in their sexual encounters. He does not pleasure her. And in fact, they the book makes it a point that he always ejaculates too soon, often before they can even have a penetrative sexual encounter. Right. And then he asks her to rate him after. Oh, my God. I just... Okay, the whole premature ejaculation thing. Yeah, well, what's the point of it? I don't know, because I think it's just supposed to make him seem like a loser. But what's the point of that? I don't know what the point of that is. And also, like, that's something that men can, like, deal with, and it's not inherently tied to them, like, being, being a loser or being bad in bed inherently, right? Like, you can, I think, get pills or something for that. But, like, regardless, like... I don't know. It's just like, what a fucking dweeb. Like, he can't even pleasure her. But she keeps going back to him. Yeah. And I'm just like, what, what are we supposed to think? Who is this? Why does May care about him? What is their vibe? Why any of this? He never becomes like a villain. No. He just keeps showing up and May keeps dating him. Yeah. And he keeps ejaculating too soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if this is to contrast, like, her being with this other person later on and, like, what they offer her, right? But I just didn't feel like it really added anything to the story, and I can completely see why the movie cut in. Yeah. I mean, his character goes nowhere, right? Like, he his, his project of putting microchips in children's bones goes nowhere. His relationship with her goes nowhere, other than it being on-off, on-off. Like, I just, I have no idea what the function of it is, even within the story. Yeah. It just served to make me upset. <laughs> very, <laughs> very uncomfortable. Yes. Uh, speaking of uncomfortable relationships, shall we talk about Calden now? Yes. Uh, May meets Calden in between her times with Francis, and she's immediately drawn to him. He looks young, but he has gray hair, and she's like, ooh. Which is a big deal. Yeah. That's brought up many times. Many a time. Um, and they have kind of these interesting conversations. He takes her to this secret underground lair where they store a lot of their data and they have sex in a cave. They have sex in a bathroom stall. But he's like also kind of socially awkward too. Yes. Like everyone's just socially awkward in this story. <laughs> I mean, one thing if he was like real suave and I mean, compared to Francis, he's suave, but he's still kind of weird also. Yeah. There's also kind of this whole mystery surrounding him. Because his name in the book is Calden. And May has no idea who he is. She tries looking him up on the Circle's, like, website and on social media. She can't find anything about him. He keeps showing up. Annie is concerned when she tells her about him. Because she's like, we sometimes get, like, corporate spies or, like, crazy people who get onto campus. 
and he keeps showing up and they'll occasionally fuck and she's like, oh my God, he's so good at sex. And I'm like, stop comparing him to Francis. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> everyone's good at sex compared to Francis. Uh, of course, in the film, we are introduced to this character, but he reveals himself to be Ty, who is one of the founders, or I guess the founder of the company, The Circle. Yeah, played by John Boyega in the movie. I do think it's interesting that he kind of reveals that he's Ty right away here. I guess if they're not really having a sexual relationship, which they don't in the movie, yeah, um, the mystery is less important. But, I mean, I knew this was Ty right away. Yeah. Literally, the second... She was introduced to him and he's like, oh, I'm Calden. And he was being really mysterious and weird. I'm like, this is going to be Ty. This is going to be the weird founder of the company. <laughs> like, I just knew it in my bones. Yeah. Man. In my bones that in are your, not microchips. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never let this go. <laughs> well, I, I think that crossed my mind at one point. But then again, I'm like, well, don't a lot of people know what he looks like? And later on, he explains you know, because in the book, it's revealed that, yes, he is Thai. And he explains like, oh, well, I have gray hair now and I look more haggard because of like the stress of running this company, which I'm like, that's absurd. Like you would still, even with gray hair, probably be able to identify like like the one of the the founder of the company. Right. Like, yeah. Who, everyone probably knows what he looks like. Like gray hair is not that uh, <laughs> much of a disguise. Right. So that's honestly, that's why I didn't really think he was tied because I'm like, surely, surely someone would recognize this man. Uh, but no, he's Ty. Yeah. In the movie. May and Ty, like, he shows her the underground storage. And in the movie, he's kind of right away, like, I invented this, but it's going too far. I'm really worried about the direction the company's taking. Like, I think that there's corruption here. I think they're sabotaging the government officials who want to, like, take down the company. Like, he's kind of laying the groundwork very early in this scene in the movie, whereas we don't really get that in the book at all. No, but then it's super weird because then he disappears for a long time. Yeah, he's just in not the in the book. While May continues to be more and more, like, indoctrinated into the circle. And I'm like, where is this man who's, like, the only one who's, like, speaking, like, yeah. truth to any I mean, of this? Yeah, I mean, he disappears in the book, too. He does. I guess just, like, when you know he's Ty and you know what his deal is. Yeah. His absence feels like more weird. Because right away it seems like, hey, I want to use you. Like, we need to, like, do something. And I think I can trust you. But anyway, I'm going to be, like, not around for a long, long time. Yeah. While you become more and more engrossed in, like, everything about this. Yeah. Let's talk about the other founders or, like, the CEO and COO. Uh, the other wise men of the company. Yeah, the three wise men. Is the what three they call wise them. men. Uh, Bailey, who is kind of the face of the company, uh, is CEO. I'm guessing. I don't remember. I don't either. Uh, <laughs> and then the COO, uh, Stetton, mm-hmm. and played respectively by Tom Hanks and Patton Oswalt. Yeah, Bailey is kind of like the charming guy, the kind uncle, right? And he's portrayed in the book. As really, like, believing in this, right? Yes. And just being, like, kind of a zealot for this weird, like, totalitarian shit, right? Yes. Like, he's all into it. He's all in. He, like, believes it, right? He'd probably be a cult leader in, like, a different scenario, right? Yeah, which is something that never really gets resolved. 
in this story. Because, like, yes, that's his outward-facing persona, right? That Like, he genuinely believes this. But I'm like, yeah, but, like, what are his actual motives, right? Like, even yeah. if he's not fully aware of them, like, when shit hits the fan, what would he do, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like we that's ever— That's a good question. We don't ever get that other side of him, right? Like, it always just feels like, I don't—I guess— by the end of the book, you're like, I mean, I guess he believed it all. Like, I don't know. But that yeah. seems, like, very far-fetched for someone in his position, right? Like, I don't know. You don't really get to ranks of power like that if you're not really looking out for yourself and seeing every possible way to, like, keep climbing the corporate ladder, right? Yeah, and I mean, with cult leaders, right? It's like a narcissism. Absolutely. But, like, it's always for their own benefit. Yes. Whereas, like, in the book and film, he's kind of depicted as, like, Caring about all of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm like, okay, but like not really though, right? Yes. And then we have uh, Stenton, who is like the business shark guy that they constantly kind of compare to just being this kind of ruthless, vicious. Like 80s Wall Street 80s Wall Street man. of course they cast Patton Oswalt. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Classic uh, sharp. Evil. Evil. Cold dead eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I think for him, the motivation is very clear that it's about money right, and control. Yeah. Uh, I think the casting of Tom Hanks as Bailey is really, really good, actually. Yeah. That's that's great casting. Like, yes, he's like America's dad or whatever, like whatever people call him. Right. Like Mm -hmm. a very trustworthy person, someone who's like feels very uh, like charismatic, but humbled and kind of like kind And we get an early scene with him when he's presenting to an auditorium, like a new new project, a new product for the circle, right? Uh, And it's very much like a TED Talk. I actually think this part of the book and the film do a really good job of, like, accurately representing what these kind of product launches are like, where... He kind of starts it off small, talking about the beach and surfing, and then like, oh, I used this little camera, right, to like see what it looks like on what the waves look like. Yeah. And then he pulls back and he's like, oh, here's 20 other locations I put these cameras in. And then, oh, let's see what's going on uh, in Egypt. Let's see what's going on in China. And he's bringing up all other cameras. Then he keeps growing and expanding like the scope and then future speculative ideas for like how this technology could just like radically change the world. Right. And that combined, especially in the film with, like, Tom Hanks's like, charming, normal guy persona. Like, I think it feels very realistic in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think this presentation and this whole, like, small cameras that connect to satellites and the cloud that can be watched by all these viewers at any time is really kind of the thrust of the story and connects to a lot of other things that happen, right? This surveillance system and, in fact, like, People start using the cameras all the time. They use them in the circle and like people are always watching. And so it kind of becomes this thing that like is building and building throughout the book and the movie. The thing, though, is like I think the movie does a better job of like making it all feel like a cool, positive type thing. When I was reading this in the book, I'm like, okay, so it's like 100 pages in and he's like suggesting like creating a surveillance state like within yeah. the U.S., And right? everyone's like, yay! Yeah, woo! <laughs> uh, and so like, I don't know, immediately it just felt so like corporate evil stuff, right? And I mean, I don't know, like it's also like obviously we use cameras all the time now, which is like an interesting debatable subject right? yeah like, like ring cameras ring right cameras, watching yeah. the street seeing people walk by like is that are we allowed to 
monitor that you know it's like a public space yeah you know? we were with a uh, family one time and someone pulled up the uh, pet camera at their house where their son was to kind of like jokingly like oh let's see what blah blah's up to right mm-hmm. and was like showing people and he was like cooking in the kitchen i was like i this is a little i don't know about this like yeah like but those kind of questions are uh like really interesting but then on the other hand you have like cell phone cameras Mm -hmm. and like a lot of good has come around from that right yeah like the ability to record the police the police or hate crimes or things like that right Mm -hmm. uh yeah i i don't know like on one hand in this book this idea reads so evil but it's pitched as being like so positive that like I don't know if it quite gets like the nuance that's actually there in the middle, you know? Yeah, I mean it's a difficult line to straddle. I think let's catch up with May's family because she one of the bright spots of her. I mean, I guess she thinks all of them are bright spots, but I guess a bright spot <laughs> to us as readers. Oh yes, is that May is able to put her parents on her health insurance, and so they're able to get the drugs and care that her dad needs for her MS. Um, this is like the one good thing that happens while she's working here. Yeah, yeah. At least it's good for the time being. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is like amazing for her. And I think a lot of people reading this can like relate and be like, oh, my God, this would be great to have good health care and to be able to put my parents on it or like other family members. Right. Like, yeah. Because health insurance in the U.S., as you may know, is awful. It is. And then she also runs into her ex, Mercer. In the movie, they're just best friends or old friends. I don't know if they've actually dated. It's unclear. Oh, I guess I just assumed they had. But like, I guess that's never really stated, is it? I mean, her parents are like, oh, the two of you should be together. And she's like, you know, we're not like that. Mm, Okay, okay. So it almost implies that her parents just want them to get together and they never did. But in the book, they dated for a time and then and now they're exes and like still friends. Either way, Mercer is supposed to be kind of this alternate point of view in May's life because he's very much someone who he doesn't participate on social media. He runs his own business. He makes antler chandeliers. That's his whole thing, Adina, is antler chandeliers. Here's the thing, though. If you don't participate on social media, there's no way that you're selling antler chandeliers (laughs) any other way. I'm sorry. It's a very niche. But that's just like an Etsy thing, right? It is. That's very true. Like, you have to have a website for that. But apparently, he objects to it. And he doesn't like that stuff. And he's very much on his high horse against May, which, like, I get wanting to have a character that has a different perspective to try to give you that balance in May's life, but he just feels so stupid. He's so obnoxious. That it doesn't work. It's so frustrating because he'll say one thing that you're like, yeah, that's really annoying. Like, and also May seems to be like her worst self around him, like more so than at any other point. Like she won't get off her phone and he's like, can you just like get off your phone for two seconds? She's like, no, 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 wait, I'm just going to show you this thing. And you're like, yeah, that would be annoying. I'd be annoyed about that. And then he goes on a tirade about how, like, social media is just digital junk food and, like, you're contributing to, like, the downfall of humanity. And I'm like, all right, dude. (laughs) Come on. Like, please. Like, it's so frustrating that kind of the only semi-voice of reason, at least up until this point in the story, is Mercer, who is just so fucking obnoxious. So annoying. Also in the film, he is played by Eller Coltrane. Eller, that's why I couldn't remember that name, uh, who 
was actually the boy from Boyhood, <laughs> the, the one that we all watched grow up in that film. Uh, look, uh, he's he's bad. He's, he's not good. He's not good in this movie. All the scenes with him are so bad, especially that scene where he confronts her at the circle. It's so bad. Oh, my God. Just, like, every line delivery, like, he's supposed to be mad. He just doesn't have, like... The projecting of anger or emotion, and he's just he's, he's so wooden. He sounds pouty. Yeah, he's just like May. Ugh, come on, I can't participate in this. Like, ugh, bye. Ugh, goodbye. Like, he's <laughs> just he seems so whiny and annoying, and you're just like, God damn it. Also, I just don't believe him as like, like I can see him as like an artsy person, but he doesn't seem like a outdoorsman type. No. Also, the book. May keeps calling him fat. Yes, a lot. Like, constantly. Like, she talks about his fat face, his fat back. His grotesque fat back. Yeah, it's just really uncomfortable. And again, I'm like, what's the point of this in the story? Much like Francis having a premature ejaculation (laughs) problem. I'm like, is this supposed to make us feel like he's a loser? Is this supposed to make us feel like, oh, Mercer's such a loser because he's fat and, like, we shouldn't believe him? Like, I don't understand. Well, I took it as, like, May is becoming, like, worse but I'm like, I don't think her job would suddenly make her fat phobic and like annoying about it. I'm like, I think that was there. Yeah. Well, she starts out like that. She starts out calling him fat. I guess it's really early. It's very early it in the story. Well, that's my point is like it almost has to be there from the beginning. But I, I don't see any other explanation for why it exists. No. It's really weird. And I do not like it. And I don't like Mercer. But I also don't like how Mercer is depicted in some ways. Uh, it's not good. It's not. Uh, we're introduced to this idea, though, that certain people in the government are going transparent, which means they're going to wear a camera, one of these cameras at all times to document their days, to give their constituents an idea of like what they're actually doing in Congress, to erase this idea of there being any type of corruption or backdoor deals happening, et cetera, et cetera. There's a couple presentations where they have Congress people doing this, and they refer to it in the book as going clear, which is actually a reference to Scientology. Yeah. I find that interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously the cult parallels within the circle are very, very clear. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I could imagine that it was like an intentional choice, but uh, I I think it's... um, I don't think you have to be that specific with what you're comparing it to, because like a lot of the shit Scientology has done is like actually really, really awful. Yeah. And to just be like, oh, it's like Scientology, I don't think is like a good look. Mm-hmm. But also it doesn't like hold on that for too long. Like they change it to going transparent. So yeah. Maybe within the book they found out like, oh, that's a Scientology thing. We have to change We should it. change that. They missed one <laughs> or two. Yeah. So this is like a whole initiative. Also, it's implied that like. So near the beginning, Congress was talking about breaking up the circle because they were a monopoly. And then the Congresswoman that was like leading that charge was like caught with something. Investigated by the FBI. Yeah. And like shit went down and that kind of like put a stopper on that idea. And then, of course, later on, someone's like, oh, do you think that's a coincidence? Yeah. And it's like, no, probably not. But also that's like the most that information we yeah, get. yeah yeah like that's the most like direct interference and corruption 
attributed to the circle, I think, that, like, we ever get in the story. Yeah, we don't really get concrete proof of what they're doing specifically that is bad or illegal. No. Yeah. Uh... May decides to go kayaking late at night. Yes, because kayaking is her thing. It's her passion. This was another thing that was frustrating because, like, I liked this parallel in this idea that she has a hobby that puts her in nature away from the circle. And it's something that she could never actually do on campus at the circle, despite, like, every, True. despite everything that they offer. It's like, well, can I kayak on a big, beautiful bay? And they're like, well, no, it's like. They'd probably, like, set up, like, a simulation. Like, yeah. how funny would that be if they? it's, like, a VR simulation <laughs> thing with, like, her moving her arms? Uh, so she has this passion, but also that conflict. It leads to this instead of actually addressing, like, that interesting dynamic, right? Yeah. Uh, it's late at night. The kayak rental store is closed, but someone has propped up their kayak outside of the rental place because it was returned late. So she's like, I'll just take it. Like, I pay this rental place, like, a monthly fee or something. It'll be fine. I know the owner. So she takes this rental kayak, kayaks out into like the ocean in the middle of the night. A storm hits. Uh, she almost drowns. In the movie. In the film, I guess. Yes. In the in the book, she just has stolen. A kayak. She just hangs out in the water, has a great time and comes back and gets arrested. Yes. <laughs> and uh, of course, this is quickly uh, brought to the attention of her employers and she is called into Bailey's office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she thinks she's going to be fired, but he sees this as a learning opportunity for her. And she's immediately like, I will do anything to get out of this situation. I'll agree with anything you're saying. I'll go along with this. I'm already like so into this, right? All I need is like a little push to get me farther. I do like the scene in the book and the movie because I feel like we are seeing her being manipulated. Yes. I especially like this scene in the book because the manipulation and how it occurs felt very interesting. And it's the only time too, where May is ever like, I mean, I don't believe in like full transparency of everything. And then Bailey's like, well, why not? Yeah. And she'd bring up some, yeah. And she'd bring up some topic and he'd kind of like shut it down. And she'd be like, well, yeah, no, I guess you bring up a good point. Right. And you see her being kind of like warped. Right. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's an interesting argument that Bailey is bringing up. Right. The idea that like secrets are almost inherently bad. And also like, well, what do you have to hide? Yeah. If, If you're afraid of being watched, then you must have something to hide. This idea that, like, if you want privacy, it's because you're doing something bad or illegal. And don't secrets, like, make you feel bad? Like, Mm -hmm. don't you feel better when you just, like, get a secret off your chest? And what if, like, we never had any secrets anymore? Like, wouldn't that just be inherently a better society? And May brings up, like, well, what about, like, I don't know, stuff that goes on in the bedroom? And he's like... Well, if everyone knows everyone's shit, then we have nothing to be embarrassed about, right? Yeah. And it's she's it's like, It's very well, insidious. Oh, yeah. And, like, and I think a lot of readers reading this can bring up very valid counterpoints to, like, why some of these arguments fall apart or don't work, right? But in the moment, you see, and I mean, I think that's relatable, too, that, like, you know, you get in an argument or discussion and later you're like, ah, oh, I should have said that. Yeah. Like, you're, you're not always going to come up with the best retorts on in the, in the moment, Um, So it's a very interesting scene to really watch the manipulation take place. And also the tactics are interesting, too, how she'll use a word and he'll be like, I'm glad you said that, like honesty or Mm -hmm. something. And then he'll like use that word against her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this leads to her kind of being pulled into this 
brainwashing circle even further. And I think Bailey sees May as a figurehead. Like, she's very young, she's sweet, she's innocent looking, that she can kind of be the face of this company and make it seem more appealing to people. So she is part of a presentation with him on stage, and they kind of roll out these three truths, which are secrets are lies, sharing is caring, privacy is theft. This is a very overt reference to um, 1984 and the, um, like, the truths of that society, which I think is interesting. And at the end of this presentation, May says that she is going to be going transparent, which means she will be wearing a camera at all times. I think now is an interesting time to bring up this like idea of the tone of the book, because this is something I kept going back and forth on. Not sure how I felt about it. Not quite sure what the book was trying to be, because in some ways this story feels like it's satire right like at some points things get like kind of absurd right like uh a co-worker crying that she missed the portugal brunch right and like the company feels so overtly evil right generally the public feels like they're almost entirely with the circle and fine with anything they do right yeah like there's mentions of like oh some people are complaining about human rights but like they're crazy like it generally feels like the world just kind of is on board with whatever happens and simultaneously may is just like along for the ride and is just drinking the kool-aid as we've said yeah and this feels like the perfect setup for satire right like let's get like really wacky with it Mm -hmm. but i don't i'm not convinced that the author is on that same page because in a lot of ways it also feels like it's trying to be a very serious like cautionary tale like 1984 or something that yes you might agree that oh the circle is evil but maybe Eggers is actually trying to like convince you that it's not like to subvert it it is and i was thinking about this too because i was thinking about the parallels to 1984 and i think it is really hard to write dystopian right i think when you're talking about 1984 or you're talking about the handmaid's tale which is an amazing example of dystopian right you're landing in a world that feels so different from your own This feels just like normal life, but like slightly enhanced. Yes. So I think you're starting out at a disadvantage there, right? Yeah. Because when you start out so different, you know you're in a different world. You know there's going to be allegory and parallel to your own world, but it's kind of giving you this like perspective, right? This lens to kind of look through it and look back at your own society. And I also think that in those stories like 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale, and even The Giver, which we talked about, right? We have these relatable characters who don't know any different or are, like, striving against it. Yes. And it doesn't mean that they have to succeed, right? We have in 1984, spoilers for 1984, we have these characters that are trying to struggle against the system but ultimately fail, right? That they ultimately, like, succumb to the pressure. But, like, you relate to them and their struggle so much and to see them fall is, like, so devastating. And in this in this story, it's like she doesn't even struggle. It's not even no. a, a problem. It's just boring. I think it would have been interesting if it was a setup where May, let's say, is someone with a passion project, like one of the ones that the circle funds, 
and maybe the circle is like the only company that is willing to fund it, but she's not like in agreement with them. They twist her vision. Yeah, and then you watch her go from like disliking it to liking it. That would have been a more interesting evolution. Whereas we said from the beginning, she's just like, no, nah, I'm just here to. This is great. Yeah, no, I love this. I love dog daycare. There's no, there's no struggle. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And it, it just kind of creates this like weird setup where I'm kind of not like anytime it got a little more absurd, I was getting excited because I was like, oh, are we starting to get are we going to crank it up? Are we going to get real wacky with it? Right. Because that's what I wanted. Because the thing is, Silicon Valley in the tech industry is already absurd. It is. It's crazy. It's like this tiny and not all of it. Right. But like a lot of it are these like very niche groups of people like working on specific things and investors and it's really its own little microcosm right yeah and like it's already ridiculous that like i think to satirize it you'd have to go way farther but like you said it kind of mostly feels realistic yeah but also it's exaggerated enough that you're like well this wouldn't happen but it's also not crazy enough that i'm like convinced it's a satire either mm-hmm. i also think it has Something to do with the fact that, like we said, this book was written 10 years ago. Yeah. And in those 10 years, I think people have become way more aware of how problematic industries like this are. We already mentioned, like, the work-life culture, right? Mm -hmm. And that, oh, just offering these things on a campus isn't inherently a good thing, right? But then you have, like, oh, they're, they're pitching all these solutions to problems and ideas. Well, then you look at what happened with Theranos recently, right? Yeah. A company built on a lie a, that was supposed to be like, oh, we're making healthcare more accessible, easier to get to, right? Like Blood tests on demand. Yeah, this whole idea that was just bullshit and just a way for a lot of people to like make money, right? And yeah. thankfully people are going to jail. And now they're in prison. And now they're in prison, thank God. But like, and then you think about like all these other recent innovations that are supposed to be like world changing, right? Like you had cryptocurrency, then you had NFTs. Now you have AI. Yeah. And they all kind of like rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall like in mm-hmm. such a short window that we've all experienced like multiples of these. recently. Yeah. And the disillusion, I think, that yeah. results from that. Also, I think we've seen a lot more public attention on efforts of you know, workers to unionize. Yeah. Right. You know, we're seeing like the Starbucks workers, Amazon workers, um, my own previous company unionized people like really trying to take back some control. And then you also have with the pandemic, this push to allow people to work from home. Right. And to really like claim their off the clock time and be like, my job is just a job. It doesn't have to consume my life. I don't have to be passionate about it. I can just clock in and clock out. And that's all I care about. Right. I just deserve to be paid a living wage and I deserve to be able to live my life outside of my job. Yeah. And I think kind of tying into that is that a lot of recent books and films that have tackled subjects like this, with the exception of ones based on like true stories, right? Like Theranos or, uh, Blackberry, uh, they've gotten more satirical and absurd. And I think for good reason, because like I was saying, like Silicon Valley and tech and stuff is already so ridiculous, right? That like to kind of really capture the feeling of that, things are getting more over the top, right? You have shows like uh, Severance, right? Mm-hmm. That's like this sci-fi work-life balance story <laughs> that the season first season's amazing. Then you have shows like Silicon Valley that are specifically about the tech industry and are just 
so over the top, but so funny, but well-researched, like actually like super accurate, right? Then you have films uh, like Sorry to Bother You, right? Yeah. Which gets real weird, (laughs) but it's saying a lot about like capitalism and like what it means to like kind of sell out, right? To like make money, things like that. Um, And there's been a bunch of skewerings of like just the upper class generally too, but I think what we expect out of these stories has grown so much. Agreed. That this story now, by today's standards, I think feels really flat and surface level. Yeah, and I can't say how I would have interpreted this if I read it 10 years ago, Yeah, right? I think potentially I could have reacted differently to it, but like I'm reading it now, and so I don't really know how I would have felt 10 years ago. But reading it now, I agree with you. It just doesn't feel like it's quite reaching the levels of where it could go. There are some aspects to it, like um, the the company culture and how she relates to that, that I find interesting. And part of me feels like if it narrowed in on that more, as opposed to like these much grander ideas, I think it could be like more compelling. But it's really taking on a lot of big subjects. Yeah. And kind of trying to do it all, and I just don't know if it's succeeding. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, Getting back to the story, though. So May has decided to become transparent and wear a camera at all times. So we kind of get a slice of her life in the book and movie here where we're seeing how she turns the camera on in the morning. She talks to her viewers. She has, like, people watching her all day. And she kind of goes about her work life in the circle. She kind of becomes this almost tour guide for viewers who are like, oh, what's it like to work at the circle? And she's like, here I am at my desk working, la, la, la. Here I am doing a tour of this really cool facility that we have. Here I am narrating about this art sculpture, right? I think it is kind of funny in the movie to just see her talking to herself while she's walking. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of hinting at that absurdity a little bit. And I also kind of like how the movie shows some random comments around her head of people watching. The randomness of the comments really pleased me. It was super accurate, right? People are just like, I just broke up with my girlfriend. Like, just like, (laughs) someone's like, I haven't gotten out of bed in 12 hours. Like, not related to what she's talking about at all. Which, like, (laughs) I commend them for being, like, so accurate to, like, what internet comments are like. Yeah. I did, I don't know if I liked all of the... I don't know. In this part, I see the use of it, but like the whole floating text bubble thing. There's a couple of montages in the movie where she's working at her desk. Yeah. And there's just like text bubbles and graphs and charts. And <laughs> I hate that. Like, it's so very specific to this time of uh, film and movies, too. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, her life is on display constantly. Everything she's doing is being watched. The book gets into this more where it talks about how she has actually lost weight because she feels guilty about eating certain things on camera and like feels guilty about taking like ibuprofen or drinking at events or or doing things that would be embarrassing. She can't really have like conversations with people because everything's being broadcast. And in fact, her relationship with Annie has really suffered as well. Yeah. But she's never like, oh, this is terrible. It's just like, oh, I can't do this now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Annie is uh, not doing well. She is. It's a combination of like she is overworked and spread very thin. And then it's also hard to know how jealous she is of May's new position because like she's kind of become one of the main faces of the circle now. Yeah. Being one of the first people to go transparent within the company is like a huge deal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Annie, man, she's not looking good, is she? No. And in the book, we have this whole subplot of 
this new product that they're kind of launching, which is some kind of genealogy project where they're digitizing all of these records and footage and things, kind of trying to figure out, it's almost like a really fancy super ancestry.com type thing. Yeah. And she volunteers to like, oh, dig into my past. Like, what are you going to find? Well, a lot of slavery, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I love that in her family in the book. This is all in the book, by the way. Um, totally cut from the movie. She's like, I didn't even know that the British people took Irish slaves back in the day. <laughs> yeah. And then they came to, and then my relatives came to America and then they had African slaves. <laughs> they just couldn't get enough of slavery. They kept just taking <laughs> slaves wherever they went. Yeah. Also, her parents like were in an open relationship which she mentions first and then follows that up with also they maybe they watched the guy die and like, they did nothing and they did nothing like he fell off a pier and they just like watched him drown. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, a lot of bad shit is coming out about Annie's family and it's not good for her mental health. I will say Karen Gillian, G- Gillian or Gillen uh, does it has a scene in the film where they're talking in opposite bathroom stalls. She is doing top-notch acting oh yeah like i don't think you realize how flat everyone else is in the movie until you see her in this scene when she's just like weepy eyed and just like unloading everything that's like going on with her like she gives a top-notch performance here yeah she's doing really well in the movie she looks very tired (laughs) (laughs) she does a great job acting very tired (laughs) there's also some negative fallout with may's parents because of this transparency thing and in fact Like, they have cameras in their house because they're getting treatment through her health insurance, and it starts to become too much for them. And they kind of have these arguments, and in one scene, May ends up coming back into the house and sees her parents having sex, and it's broadcast on her camera. Yeah. In the film, it's, like, through the cameras in their house that she, like, sees it. And, uh, yeah, um, she at least in the book, tries to have the footage taken down and Bailey's like, you know, we can't do that. Yeah. And it's kind of, once again, like touching on that absurdity of like people in the comments are like, I think it's sweet that your parents still have sex at that age. And like, she's trying to tell her parents, like, it's not a big deal. And her parents are like, get the fuck away from me. They're literally like, don't contact us anymore. Like they kind of cut contact with her in the uh, book. Yeah. Yeah. So um, big repercussions there. Yes. The company is talking about completing the circle, which sounds very ominous. They keep saying completion. I was going to say sexual. (laughs) (laughs) Completion. We're reaching completion. We're nearing completion. (laughs) (laughs) Francis is already there. (laughs) Francis was ahead of everybody else on completion. Francis was there ages ago. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, it's like, like, it, it's unclear what exactly this means. And I don't even know if they know what it means. It's just kind of this, like, mantra or, like, this general goal, right? Yeah, it almost feels like what they want is for every person in the world to have a circle account. And that yes. seems to be their goal. We have a really interesting part in the book only, um, which is May attending these presentations by these young inventors and innovators who have these ideas for projects and they want the circle to kind of fund them. And I think this is a really good scene because it kind of shows us where these 
cameras and kind of the mission of the circle is taking the world and how it's inspiring other people to make similar products that are pushing things further into that totalitarianism, into that surveillance state. And in fact, we have products like, oh, this would be something that police would wear in their retinas that would show them who's already committed a crime and it would color them in a specific color so that they cannot like just arrest any random person and like strangle them and like beat them up. They'll know who actually has committed a crime in the past and then they can enact their police brutality on those people. Yes. There's other projects about like, oh, if someone's in your neighborhood, everyone in the neighborhood will be like alerted, notified. And but then if someone like vouches for them, then like it's all cool. Yeah. Um, Very ominous. Very ominous. Once again, though, like there's a level of like real world nuance to all of this that like I, I, I get that's like not what it's trying to do but also i had like a an interest in that to a degree because like on one hand that discussion on like uh the police uh what censoring thing like it actually made me think of a totally different topic but in regards to like the um the congress people wearing the 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 cameras and i was like well, I mean, we require police to wear cameras. Yeah. And that's generally good, right? Yeah. So, like, why Where does it, that fall in? Yeah, yeah. Where, where's that line? And I'm like, that would have been a great point for the book to bring up, like, I know. way long ago. <laughs> 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 Is that idea of, like, well, hey, here's a gray area. Here's a gray line. Like, mm-hmm. police wearing cameras, great. Why not elected officials? Yeah. And I was like, well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'd yeah. have to think about it. Or, you know, like, it, it kind of would get you second guessing things but sometimes i think the book it doesn't rest on any of these ideas long enough to like explore them at all that's a good point and i get that's like kind of not what it's trying to do but i felt that way with like a lot of these things that they're pitching like one was about guns and they're like oh this has reduced gun crimes by like 50 some percent in detroit mm-hmm. i was like what Wait, can you explain that? What yeah, does go that back mean? to that. Yeah, go back. But then it's like, no, we're moving on. I'm like, is that real? Is that stat real? What are we talking about? But it's mm-hmm. just like, no, moving on to the point where I'm like, are you trying to convince me this is all good? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it is just kind of overwhelming. And at this point, you're just like being inundated with a lot of information. Yes. A so, lot of ideas. Yeah. I mean, we're in, and we're in the last parts of the story. So, I mean, things are getting kind of intense. We also have um, a meeting with the circle kind of. Uh, group like the top 40 is what they call them all these like very influential people in the company and they're talking about how they want to revolutionize voting in america and kind of make it more um like more mandatory for people to do right and may is like why don't we take it further and have people vote through the circle and have all government services go through the circle and turn the circle into a government. <laughs> and everyone's like, that's genius. Why didn't we think of that? And this is one of those things where like, okay, so yeah, May is fully like, now she's coming up with ideas, right? Yeah. But I'm like, this isn't really, I'm sure the circle like would do this. Like, the moment that they could. I doubt that it's, like, nobody thought of it, right? Like, oh, how do we make this more mandatory? It's more about what's actually possible, right? And so, I don't know. They're treating her like she's this, like, new innovator and, like, bringer of ideas. And I was kind of waiting for the ball to drop at some point that, like, oh, no, we're just using you. Yeah. You're a figurehead. And we, like, people like you, so we're using you. 
But like that doesn't really come. No, they're actually treating her like she's some like genius. And mm-hmm. that felt odd to me. I totally agree with that. I think we already mentioned that Annie has like kind of a breakdown here um, with all of the public attention from her family history and stuff. And she's deteriorating because she's working too hard. Things like that. Yeah. Um, let's get into a very, very bad TED talk. <laughs> May is a no good, bad TED talk. (laughs) May is presenting this new project initiative called Soul Search, which is not a dating app, as you might guess. No, it's just a way to find any person on Earth that you want to at any moment. And that's totally normal and fine. It'll be totally fine. It's totally chill and cool and fine. They use a demonstration for a demonstration to find this female fugitive who has escaped from prison in the UK. And they're able to track her down with everybody kind of using the software and cameras and surveillance and things. I think it's interesting because there's a moment in the book, even though this is almost exactly the same in the movie, there's a moment in the book where they're chasing this woman because they finally find her and they kind of corner her. And someone says, lynch her. (laughs) And I think that is so real, right? Yeah. Because you're getting that mob mentality. Except... I object to the fact that they would say lynch her. Yeah. I don't think people would say that. I would think they'd say get her. Get her. Right? Or like beat her up. Right? They wouldn't say let's lynch her. And then everyone looks at that Everyone's person. like yes, lynching. Yes. Ugh, I don't know. I don't think they would, you should have said that. They would say something like <laughs> let me get at her. Like right? You know? Yeah. It was a little uh, on the nose kind of. But not- I do think it's realistic as to what would happen. Oh, you're riling up a mob. Yeah. This is like something that kind of kind of interesting like i watch a lot of like youtube commentary on politics and stuff and like it's so it's such a niche group right but like they all have their fan base and there's constantly discussion on like oh such and such as fan base went after this person right like you said something bad about them and then they all just like cyber stalk yeah. and cyber attack them and it's like there's a lot of power in that if you have a fan base and especially if you're like fucking google or whatever like if you sick like your people on anybody, like I know. that's a huge amount of power. You can't to control wield. it. No, you, you don't can't. know what will happen. And so they're like, "Oh well, that went really well. We arrested this criminal. Uh, she almost got lynched, but it's fine. It's totally cool. Let's do another one. Let's roll the dice again." <laughs> and they're like, "Maybe not a fugitive this time." And I find this interesting because in the book, May is immediately like, "Why don't we find Mercer? Yeah, that'll be fun. My fat friend. My fat." <laughs> My fat fucking friend. <laughs> Whereas in uh, the film, like the crowd, because they know May's life, they know who Mercer is. And the crowd starts chanting for Mercer. Mm-hmm. And she's like put on the spot. To and do she it. doesn't want to. And they kind of force her to in the movie. I mean, honestly, I like it in the book better that she's just like so in the sauce. I know. That she's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's like, do Mercer. This is my idea. Yeah. So they start this whole process again. And within, like, 10 minutes, people have, like, shown up on Mercer's doorstep. And I thought someone was going to get shot. I thought Mercer was just going to, like, unload a (laughs) 12-gauge shotgun into somebody. Um, But instead, he flees. He gets in his truck. And then you just have a mob of people chasing him. Yeah. And you have drones after him. And I think it's funny because in the book, May is still, like, trying to make light of the situation. Like, I don't think... She thinks it's serious yet. She's no. like, oh, Mercer, come on, like, pull over. We're but she wants to win, right? Oh, yeah. 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 And whereas, like, in the film, like, May is like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Like, yeah. what have I done? Yeah. Uh, Mercer drives <laughs> off a bridge. 
Yes. In the book, he kills himself intentionally. Yep. He's tired of being chased and he hates May so much he's willing to kill himself over it. In the movie, it's kind of maybe more realistic in that when you have a bunch of people chasing you, uh, it turns into a crash. Yeah. Right? It turns yes. into a collision. He just like accidentally drives off this bridge because of other people chasing him, causing him to veer wildly in his car, right? Yeah. The movie plays this up for drama, and I just don't think it works. No. Like it's it's edited weird. It's trying to make it exciting. And I'm just like, this is this is satire. This or this should be satire, right? Like this is absurd. And May should be like fully on board with it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh so Mercer's dead. Yeah, Mercer is dead. I I wish I could say I was more sad about it, but honestly, <laughs> I mean, like, it's it's obviously like this kind of cautionary moment for like what they're dealing with. Yeah. But different fallout moments from book to movie on this. Yeah. In the book, she is sad, but she kind of just keeps on going with her life. Like, doesn't really seem to react much to Mercer dying. The movie is much more like she has a crisis because of this. Yeah. She goes back home to her parents and is just, like, not getting out of bed, right? Uh, just taking it, like, really hard and feeling, like, really responsible for it. Yeah. She ends up having a video chat with Annie at this point, who has moved back to Ireland. Scotland. Scotland. Damn it, I knew. I was like, <laughs> I forget which. I'm 50-50. Uh, moved back to Scotland. And they just kind of have a nice chat. And May is like, I miss this. And this is nice. And this is nice to talk to you. And this is something that I kind of liked, although it didn't lean into it too much. And that is like, not all technology and social media is evil. Yeah. Like they're video chatting together. Yeah. they're just And that's yeah. a tool to connect them, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think all, many of us found out during the pandemic what an amazing, wonderful tool that can be. Yeah. And that is one thing that I get frustrated with, with like a lot of uh, dystopian future stories. It's just like the evils of technology. And mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, but like, no. <laughs> Can we be like a, like 5% more nuanced about this, please? Uh, so I kind of liked this moment, except it sparks an idea with May in the film. And she's like, I have to go back to the circle. I can change it. I can change it. There's something I must do. Yeah. And so that's kind of like where she takes off. Um, she goes back to the circle, right? Mm-hmm. And she's in the circle in the book. There's one moment here I just have to call out because it like made me laugh although it shouldn't have, I don't think in either version. And that is that Bailey and maybe it's Stetton in the book. They're talking about how unfortunate it was that Mercer wasn't driving a self-driving car. (laughs) Because it wouldn't have driven off the bridge. And I'm like, that is so funny. Yeah. And that's like, that's the satire I want from this story. Yes. That they're taking a crisis that they caused. They caused. And trying to solve the wrong aspect of it. Yes. By selling another product. Yes. And they're, they're like, like, this is how we fix this. Yes. Self-driving cars. <laughs> not uh, avoiding stalking people or sicking mobs on people. Self-driving cars. Yes. Uh, if only Mercer had been driving a self-driving <laughs> car. Like, that's so funny to me. It is really good. <laughs> um. So she gets back and... We have in the book, because this whole time, you know, she's been thinking about Kaladin. She hasn't really seen him that much. She doesn't know that he's Thai. And this is where she finds out that he is Thai. And she's, like, super stunned and doesn't know what to think. And then he's kind of like, things are bad. I have to talk to you. Like, we have to kind of stop the circle from circling. (laughs) Completing the circle. We have to stop it. Yeah, he makes his whole case to May. This part was weird to me also because, like, 
he's revealing like, hey, maybe putting microchips in the bones of children is a bad idea. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, obviously. And this gets back to the whole satire thing because I'm like, you know, satire requires giving the audience enough credit to read between the lines of like what is like good and what's crazy. And I would assume that throughout this book, we're supposed to think this is all crazy. But then we have Ty like spelling things out here. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know if this is supposed to be for May or like for the reader. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, I need you to read this statement when you make your presentation and then I'll help you take things down in the circle. Like, I need you to kind of say this out loud. You're like a figurehead. If you kind of cast doubt on these things, more people will believe you. We can do this together and all that. And May is like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Ty was like, also, we can go anywhere we want. We can go and live in the woods. And I'm like, you don't don't even know know her. Each other. What are you taught? You fucked in the bathroom. Yeah. And in a basement. (laughs) You haven't even like fucked in a normal bed yet. What are you talking about? (laughs) That part felt like so out of nowhere to me that he's like, we can make it work. Yeah. Uh, Let's just get to the end of the book here. Yeah. And finish this up. She decides not to. And in fact, we don't even get a description of this. We just have her saying, yes, I agree, Ty, like, we'll figure things out. And then it cuts to the next uh, kind of phase of the book where it's her sitting in Annie's hospital room because Annie is in a coma. Yes, just out of nowhere. Yeah. Coma. Bam. (laughs) The trauma, I guess, of working at the circle put (laughs) her in a coma. And finding out that your parents maybe killed somebody. Yeah. And had an open relationship. (laughs) (laughs) And... May is kind of reflecting back on the time that's passed and saying like, oh, it's a really good thing that I told Bailey and Stenton about what Ty was going to do and I ratted him out and then they stopped it from happening and now everything's great, the circle, and everything's perfect and it is a totalitarian, dystopian nightmare. Yep, and I've never been happier. And I, I do like the final moments of like she's looking at like, the what the EKG for mm-hmm. Annie like on the monitor and thinking about like what's going on in her head and like why can't we find out what's going on and just like that I absurd idea of like nothing should be left unknown not even the thoughts in your head right yeah yeah you're not safe no the film <laughs> uh she calls Ty mm-hmm. and is like I need your help and he's like sure and this is like, well, like, who are you again? We well, haven't yeah, seen like, you right, we haven't seen you. were standing <laughs> in the back of an auditorium at one other point in this story. Uh, but he's like, sure, whatever you need. And she is a part of a presentation with Bailey and she gets Stetton to come out as well. And she talks about transparency. And then she's like, by the way, why don't you go transparent, Bailey? Like, let's do it. And she like puts a camera on him and like clearly putting him on the spot. And then she's like, also... Uh, I got the help of Ty, the founder of the company, and we leaked literally every email account, even the super secret ones, even the top secret ones that like your secretary doesn't know about. We leaked all of them and everyone can find all this information now. Yeah. Except what's there? What is it? Are we like, I think we're just supposed to assume because they're CEOs that they're like, I mean, they say we're fucked to each other. Well, yeah, but like, I mean, it, it. In what way? We haven't seen them. Yeah, exactly. We haven't seen them actually be nefarious at any point in this story. Like, honestly, like, Bailey, Tom Hanks' character, could still genuinely believe everything that he says he believes in. But I think we're just supposed to assume he's bad, which, I mean, yeah, obviously, I'm sure he is. Yeah. But, like, I want more evidence of that instead of just, like, oh, 
your emails are leaked. And he's like, oh, no. Oh, no, not my emails. Not the emails. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like he turns to Patton Oswalt and is like, we're fucked. And then the power goes out. Yeah. And everyone in the auditorium holds up their cell phones on max brightness. Yeah. And illuminates her so she can finish talking. And then it's like a scene of her kayaking and there's drones all around her and they're on screens. And I'm like, what happened? What is this ending? Like she's genuinely, genuinely presenting the actual authentic idea of like going transparent. Right. And that like, oh, well, if we are going transparent, then you have to go transparent, Bailey. And it's not my fault if that's bad for you, right? Yeah. And, like, this is actual equality, the equality that you wanted. And it's one thing to, like, use that against your enemy, kind of. But it seems like she really believes what she's saying. And we get, yeah. the, we get the visual metaphor of when she's leaving the auditorium, it's through a really bright door, which feels like validating what she's saying. I don't know, Ian. I think this is supposed to be her leaning even more into the circle than the circle founders. Yeah, but all the imagery and the music and even the end credits feels positive. Like she made it something better and she fixed it. Like she did a good job. Like she did a good thing, Adina. I know. This movie ending is so confusing. It's stupid and poorly done. Weird. What an odd way to end your film. Yeah. And like, if you were going to go to those lengths, like, I want this to be like Black Swan. I want to watch yes. a, a woman's descent into absolute madness. Exactly. But through social media. That would have been great. Like, just watch a woman lose her mind <laughs> and, like, become the villain by the end of the story, right? Like, yeah. I think that could have worked. Instead of this, like, story where, like, you're, you're kind of relating to her and then you feel bad for her and then she's like, ha I did a bad thing, maybe? I don't know, Ian. And this is leading us into a discussion on which is better, which is actually, you know what, a little bit more nuanced than I maybe thought, because objectively, this movie is horrible. It's not good. However, I I, had problems with the book as well. I had a lot of problems with the book, too. And like the the movie's bad, but it has like 14 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's like been so critically panned. I I don't think it's like that deserving no like it's bad but i don't know if it's like i've seen worse oh yeah i don't think it's like as atrocious as i mean i think it's a combination of like had such a star-studded cast and it was based on a popular book yeah Uh, i think like hype more of a letdown yeah it was more of like a letdown kind of thing and like to be fair it doesn't do anything really no but like it's not as Bad as I think, like, the Rotten Tomatoes score, for example, makes it out to be. Yeah, and you know what? Even though I did have problems with the book, I'm probably still going to say the book is better. Because the book is actually, like, doing something. Even though I don't think it always succeeds, I think it's making you think about these subjects. It is bringing up, like, a perspective and kind of like a cautionary tale about technology and companies and monopolies and like social media and these like workplaces kind of taking over your life. Like I said, I was pretty mixed on it, but like it is better than the book, I think. Or it's better than the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to agree with you. Like the book was very frustrating to me, to be honest. Uh, But I think part of that is like I think a lot of the stress I felt reading it was like was intentional to a degree. And if you're someone who reads that and, like, kind of enjoys that or feels like it's more of a thriller kind of vibe or, like, exciting, like, if that's your jam, I could see liking this a lot more. 
And similarly, I think one of my biggest problems was like the book tries to do too much. And to me, it feels like half measures of everything. Yeah. But I mean, there are movies and stuff that I like that do a lot, but successfully, or at least I feel successfully. So if you're someone who like enjoyed this book, I can see feeling like, oh, it's touching on all these subjects, right? Like mm-hmm. it's co- it's covering so much. To me, it's not worth it because I don't think it touches on anything significantly enough. Yeah. Um, but I thought about this book a lot <laughs> while we were reading it, like yeah. a lot. And yeah. mostly like, what's my problem with this book? <laughs> and like trying to like boil down like my, my genuine feelings on it. But like it clearly was engaging mentally uh, in a significant way, whereas the movie's just there. Yeah. It's not the worst thing in the world. It exists, but it is what it is. Yeah, so I think it's going to be a book for both of us yes. for this one. And um, let's hear from Caroline, our patron who requested this episode. So Caroline says, To me, this book isn't the best book of all time. I don't, have a, I don't love a lot of the characters, and there's a few icky, problematic things about it that I'm not a fan of. However, it is so engaging, and I've been drawn in to read it three times now. I've tried to convince everyone in my life to read it so I have someone to talk about it with. So thank you for covering it. I'm just fascinated by the very gradual growth of May's involvement in the circle, the weird clinginess of all the circlers, and the many ways that the book echoes aspects of real life. Every time I read this book, I am just so impressed with how thought-provoking and memorable it is. I was so excited for the announcement that it would be adapted into a film with such a star-studded cast. Then I watched the movie. So much was cut, and then it didn't capture the themes and ideas that made the book what it is. It didn't even have a nuanced approach to the story to compensate for how much of the book was cut. It failed in every single aspect, the plot, the lack of visual creativeness, the characters, and the performances were so underwhelming. The movie added absolutely nothing to the conversation that the book started so well. Definitely agree with your assessment of the movie, Caroline, and um, I hope you enjoyed this discussion. I know we were a little bit hard on the book. (laughs) I hope um, it was still kind of an enjoyable experience for us to discuss it. And I mean, like everybody's opinions will differ on things like this. You know, if it works for you and I mean, you've read it three times, that's awesome. As we say all the time on this podcast, it's it's cool to like things. It is cool to like we things. We say it all the time. Yes. It's basically our catchphrase. <laughs> I wish I liked this book more than I did, honestly. Like, I enjoy enjoying things, right? So mm-hmm. I'm, like, really glad that you enjoy this book and that, like, you get something out of it. Also, I get the feeling of, like, wanting to talk to people about it. I know. We talked about it a lot while we were reading. I was, like, looking up reviews when I was done. I'm like, what are people saying about this, right? Yeah. Like, it's, def- it's definitely a... Um, a conversation starter. A conversation starter, absolutely. So, uh, uh, yeah, thank you so much for recommending this episode to us. It was very interesting to discuss. Let's do lightning round. Let's get the lightning. Okay, so first for lightning round, I have to mention this whole, like, plot line in the book where Stenton... The Wolf of Wall Street man, right, (laughs) is, okay, we're building this submersible machine so I can go into the Marianas Trench, right? And to me, this actually was, like, super prescient because it was very Ocean Gate. Oh, my God. With the exploding sub, like, the deep sea sub going down and, like, the billionaires funding it, right? And so he goes into this... Submarine to the Marianas Trench brings back all these unique species of fish down there. He brings back a shark, an octopus, a seahorse from the Marianas Trench, and they have them on display. And then one day he's like, put them all in the same tank. And they're like, okay, that's a perfectly great idea. Why don't we put the shark 
in the same tank as an octopus and seahorses, right? Great. And they're like, oh, this should work just fine because they all live together down at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, so they'll be fine together, right? Right? And then the shark just devours them mercilessly. Immediately. Such a creepy scene in the book because Stanton is just watching it and he's like grinning and he's like happy and he's like watching the shark like just rip these animals to pieces and he's like yes yes (laughs) yes and i'm like okay we get it this is like a metaphor for the company and bailey is like feeling sick about it yeah also the shark is transparent right like you can see into it because it's like a bottom of the ocean thing it's an effective scene although very heavy-handed and if it weren't heavy handed enough, Adina, if you didn't have a concussion from how hard it hits you over the head with this analogy later on, shortly after is at the end of the book when Ty is talking to May. Yeah. And he's like, did you see that shark and what it did to those people? That's the circle. I know. Like, <laughs> like we know. He spells it out for you. Well, and May like, doesn't. Know. I get it. I guess. Yeah, I guess I'm not giving May. Very true. Um. Something I wanted to talk about that I don't usually get many opportunities to discuss uh, on the podcast, and that is graphic design, because we have the logo for the circle in the book, and it's actually the cover of the book. It's that circle with kind of the knitted pattern and the C in the middle. And then we have a movie version of the logo that's very different, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you, actually, Adina, you caught onto this, or you said it before I even said anything about it. You were like, that would not work as a logo on the book. Yeah. And I'm like, you're absolutely correct. It is not scalable. <laughs> the C in the middle, too small. Mm-hmm. Too intricate with like the lattice work thing. Like it's too much. It wouldn't work. No, I mean, you need something small. So when you see a tiny icon on a screen, it's instantly recognizable. I mean, that's why so many logos now have simplified to the point of like, you know, Google got rid of its serif G in favor of like a sans serif G and like Apple's literally just an Apple. And mm-hmm. like you want it to scale down to basically as small as you could ever need it and it's still readable right uh i mean it's a different situation if like you have an old company with an already recognizable logo that you're trying to like make modern but like this is a new company and yeah the logo uh in the book it just doesn't work i'm sorry no it's an f uh the film better like it's it's like what we were talking about like it's just a basic letter Mm -hmm. now the word the circle is in the gap of the sea again probably not readable at a small scale no and actually i was trying to look because i was wondering on small applications of it i'm like is the word the circle still in there Mm -hmm. because on a small application you'd obviously just get rid of the word yeah and you'd probably just get rid of it in all instances to be honest but it's a much more usable logo just that big c which is almost a circle but not quite right like Mm -hmm. good i believe that that's a very (laughs) very believable tech logo and actually the funny thing is uber rebranded very shortly after this came out and that was that re- weird reverse C logo oh, yeah. that people are like what is this and they're like we're sorry we'll change it and then they just immediately <laughs> changed it but people were like this looks like the logo from the movie The Circle. That is so funny. <laughs> they were like they were ahead of the curve on that one. Uh, just a really brief one. In the book at the end of the book as far as I can tell May has nine screens at her desk. Yes. It's very funny because every 
every so often in the book, they'll add a screen to her desk and they'll mention it. And they'll be like, she has five screens now. Oh, she was up to seven screens. And I just wish that we had this in the movie. I think she only has five screens in the movie. It's hard to, like, do the iPads count? Because there's a couple iPads. I don't think they count. But, like, I wanted to see her just covered in screens, right? (laughs) Enveloped, like, in a dome of screens. Yes. Yeah, it is funny. Uh... Final for finally for lightning round. I had to read this. This is our first introduction to Francis, and the way he's described, I it's it's insane to me. <laughs> so I just have to read this. Finally, she got a good look at him. His face was a soft triangle, concluding in a chin so subtly dimpled she hadn't seen it before that moment. He had the skin of a child, the eyes of a much older man, and a prominent nose, crooked and bent, but somehow giving stability to the rest of his face, like the keel of a yacht. His eyebrows were heavy dashes, rushing away toward the ears, which were rounded, large, princess pink. What? (laughs) What is a soft triangle, (laughs) Ian? (laughs) What does this man look like i can't picture it a triangular face skin of a child eyes of an old man <laughs> big skin crooked of a nose. baby with microchips in its bones <laughs> <laughs> eyebrows rushing to his ears what I'm, is the the keel of a yacht, the keel of a yacht. <laughs> what is a keel <laughs> i really want to do i want to do like a napoleon napoleon dynamite-esque like drawing oh of like God. what what he looks like based on that description Wow. (laughs) That is lightning round, and that wraps up our episode. Thanks so much for listening, and special thanks to our patron, Caroline, for requesting this episode. If you have an episode you would like us to discuss, best way to do that is to become a patron, because patrons get first priority on those episode requests. They also get access to our Discord server, where we're constantly talking about books and movies and all other kinds of fun stuff. And you also get monthly bonus episodes. Yes, we'll have one coming out right at the end of the year or start of the next year, which is a uh, 2023 wrap-up where we discuss all the books, all the movies, we rank them. The highs, the lows. The highs, the the lows, the caging skies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so uh, if you want to listen to that, join our Patreon at any tier. And uh, if you can't do that, like giving us a rating on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts is also super helpful. Following us on social media such as The Circle, Facebook, (laughs) The Circle, Google, or The Circle uh, is also a great way to keep in contact with us. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next year. See you next year. Bye. Bye.